everyone! Before we start, I wanted to let you know, if you would like to watch our whole service, head to our website, that's dc2.me, and from the media drop-down, click Sermons. You can watch our whole service there. And now, here's this week's sermon. Real quick before we jump into our message, I want to give kind of our final update of our runway campaign. Uh, If you've been here for the last month, we've been doing a financial campaign talking about going into this next season of our church's history. What do we need over the next 18 months? And so we determined over the next 18 months, we had a gap of about $270,000. And as the end of July, we hit $255,700. Let's celebrate. That's exciting. Uh, So that is 95% funded, which is awesome. Uh, If you have contributed to that campaign or if you have pledged, you should have received an email from our lead pastor. And if you haven't, if you email him and let him know to make sure that it's all counted, that would be great. Tomorrow, our elders meet to actually discuss what our next steps are, and I'm really excited about our future. So thank you, Discovery Church. Uh, So I love to write. Uh, It's one of my passions, About six years ago, I was feeling pretty exhausted, feeling pretty burnt out. So I met with our lead pastor and said, hey, what do I do? And he said, find something that you have a passion about that isn't necessarily about ministry, not about your job, not about sermons. And the fact that I'm about to use it in a sermon, I think defeats that entire purpose, but should be okay. Uh, So I got into writing, uh, and I love it. I write fiction. I write in every genre, whether it is science fiction, fantasy, mystery, sweet hallmark romance. That is honestly my favorite to write. You can laugh, but it's awesome. Um, I love to write. It's like the greatest thing ever. I love storytelling, and where is this character going to go, and what does it look like? It's, an, it's incredible. And as I started to write, I started to look at Facebook groups and forums and read books, and everything I read said, if you want to be a better writer, you need to be a better reader. You need to watch more TV You need to watch more movies. And as you do, write down what sticks. Like, what are the characters? What are the scenes? What are the movies that when you're laying in bed at night, you're like, I can't stop thinking about that? Uh, What is it about that that just sticks with me no matter what I do? Uh, And then what are the movies? What are the books? What are the TV shows that you lay down in bed and they're so forgettable, you know you'll never think about them again? Uh, So for me... I think the first time I saw the movie Remember the Titans was 30, 20 years ago, long time ago. I, I can't get that out of my head. Just incredible movie, just this amazing, just this passion, these scenes. Um, and as I started reading, as I started writing, uh, I began to realize that the really important thing to focus on uh, isn't necessarily plot. Uh, it's not necessarily themes, uh, not even really story structure or setting, It's characters, because characters matter. We put ourselves in their shoes, and you have to recognize that in different genres, different characters behave differently. Uh, You take a look at a movie like Memento. Memento is a phenomenal movie where you have no idea what's happening until the last 30 seconds, and then the last 30 seconds, you finally understand the movie and have to immediately start the entire movie over and watch the whole thing again. It's incredible. Um, Literally up to the last second, don't know what's going on, and you compare that to my favorite, Hallmark, which, as we know, the mark of a good Hallmark movie is if you can't figure out the ending by minute 12, they wrote it poorly. <laughs> like, we think about it. See, you can already guess how this is going to end. Just imagine, big executive businesswoman, 
moves to a small town in Vermont, meets a single dad with a cute kid. He's a maple syrup farmer, of course. She, dates, she was engaged to a man, but he's all about money. She falls in love with a guy and the kid. This guy ends up getting, you know, left, but he realizes he wasn't all about money. He actually loved art. His dad just didn't let him, so actually he has a good ending as well. That uh, movie is called Sweeter Than Syrup. It's actually never been written, I don't believe, and if it hasn't, I will write it, because that sounds awesome. <laughs> the thing is, we thrive on three-dimensional characters. We hate one-dimensional characters. Uh, if you can think of characters that you've struggled with, you've probably struggled because they don't have any depth. Uh, nobody likes a character who's a good guy uh, just because they're good and they have no flaws. Uh, and nobody likes a bad guy who's evil just because they're evil and they have no good, they have no backstory. It's, it's boring. So I thought I'd give a couple examples of good characters. The first one, Nancy Drew. Strong, independent woman, which actually when it was written in the 1930s was a negative. They didn't know how they were going to market this. Um, down to earth, charges into danger, solves murders, but like is normal. And you kind of think to yourself, if I was in that position, I might do the same thing. That's a good character. Or if you have trouble like resonating with Nancy Drew, Hardy Boys, because they're almost carbon copies, sort of. Um, let me give you an example of a bad villain um, that turns into a good one. Uh, I'm going to introduce you to the most one-dimensional villain ever written for a movie. From a movie that's almost 50 years old, it turns 50 this decade, and that is Darth Vader. Sorry for anyone who got upset. In Star Wars A New Hope, he has no depth to his character. He wears black, he has an edgy-looking lightsaber, he kidnaps princesses, he blows up planets, even when they give the information he's looking for, even if she was lying, it didn't matter. He tortures people, he tries to shoot down farm boys, and if George Lucas could have afforded it in his budget, he would have kicked a puppy. There is no depth to his character. He's bad just to be bad. But then we get to the second movie, and I won't spoil a like, 40-year-old movie for you, but Darth Vader, who has very little depth, at one point we see him without his helmet, we see these scars across his head, and we think, oh, maybe there's something there. Or there's this iconic scene at the end of An Empire Strikes Back where he's with Luke Skywalker and Luke is hanging from this thing and Darth Vader utters this famous line and you're like, oh my gosh, all of these things in the first movie, there's actual depth. Uh, he's not one-dimensional, he's three-dimensional. And every movie after that, every book, every comic goes into this depth of Darth Vader's character. Uh, the heart behind his evil actions, the, the broken psyche, the broken soul, uh, and what causes someone to go that direction. Today we're going to talk about heroes and villains in the Bible. Uh, let's talk hero. We'll just make the easy one. We'll just talk about this guy, Jesus. Uh, so Jesus fits this model where he is super-powered, right? He performs miracles. He raises people from the dead. He himself raises from the dead, turns water into wine, walks on water, um, but also shows up to weddings. Uh, and when they run out of wine, he turns water into wine uh, and then he tells people, hey, don't tell anyone it was me. I, I think I just want them to have a good wedding. He moves into the neighborhood. He spends time with people. Uh, he says things that his disciples, his closest followers, cringe at. And his disciples say things that he cringes at. He gets angry. 
He gets sad. He asks questions. And so even though he is super powered, we can put ourselves in his shoes. We, we can resonate with him. Now, villains in the Bible can sometimes come across as one-dimensional. The first one I'll mention are the Romans. And they're kind of ancillary villains in the New Testament because while they, like, crucify Jesus, um, they're subjugating the Jewish people, uh, we honestly don't see them much. They kind of react to what's going on. Uh, So we'll push them to the side a little bit and take a look at the villains that Jesus talks about a lot, the religious leaders of the time. Just a quick summary of a few religious groups at the time. I'll throw out four with honorable mention to the Herodians, the scribes, a few more. Uh, But the first are the zealots. Uh, One of the zealots actually is in Jesus' group, Simon the Zealot. Uh, The zealots believed in kind of overthrowing Rome. Uh, They looked at Rome as this blight. Uh, God had created us to be holy. He had created us to be separate. Rome has taken over. With our help, God can overthrow Rome. Uh, And one of Jesus' disciples is actually a guy named Simon the Zealot. Uh, The second one were the Essenes. Uh, The Essenes were kind of this monastic group out in the desert, away from everybody, looked at personal holiness. They believed that God's kingdom would come and it didn't require their help. Um, Has anyone ever heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls? Dead Sea Scrolls came from a a group of Essenes. Um, And Jesus didn't speak much to these two groups. He spoke a lot to the next two, the Sadducees and the Pharisees. Um, He did not like them. Uh, The Sadducees, uh, they believed in the first five books of the Old Testament, the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, 613 rules, and they took them literally. Uh, There wasn't much room for interpretation. It was literal. And they put all of their backing behind a high priest, behind a council, and they really tied themselves to Rome. Uh, They got in bed with the people who were kind of subjugating the Jewish people. And the second group were the Pharisees. Uh, Now, the Pharisees believed in those same five books of the Bible, those 613 laws, but they also took a look at all of the other writings of the Old Testament. And then they added on to it. Uh, They took all the rabbinical teachings over the last few thousand years that were combined in the Midrash and the Mishnah, and they started saying, hey, when God said, be separate, he also meant this. And they started adding on extra rules. They started adding on extra things because they believed in personal holiness. Um, It was important for me to be personally holy before God. If God wants us to be separate and holy, then I'm going to work harder than anyone to be holy. Now, the Pharisees, at first glance, when we look through the Bible, are one-dimensional villains. They are one-dimensional bad guys uh, because it seems like they just keep putting their foot in their mouth. Let me give you a few examples. Uh, Today, we're going to be in Matthew 12. So if you have your Bible, you can follow along. We're going to read three stories where Jesus interacts with Pharisees who come across as pretty one-dimensional. Matthew 12, 1 through 8. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry and began to pick some heads of grain and eat them. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. He answered, Haven't you read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God, and he and his companions ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for them to do, but only for the priests. 
Or haven't you read in the law that priests on Sabbath duty in the temple desecrate the Sabbath and yet are innocent? I tell you that something greater than the temple is here. If you had known what these words mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, from the book of Hosea, you would not have condemned the innocent, for the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. So the Pharisees took these laws in the Old Testament, uh, but they followed another set, another set of about 39 general laws. We'll throw them up on the screen. Uh, these are called the Melakot, and if you speak Hebrew, I'm positive I just mispronounced that. I apologize. Um, these are prohibited activities that were added on. Now, what's fascinating, if you are somebody who tries to jump into the Bible outside of a Sunday morning, I would encourage you to take a picture of this, write it down, do something, because once you read this, the Bible becomes so much more full. Uh, for example, there's this place where Jesus performs a miracle. There's a woman who has this medical condition where she's all twisted up. And so Jesus goes and heals her, and it untwists her body, and the Pharisees freak out. They are so angry. And it seems odd on the surface. Why would they be mad that Jesus just healed somebody? Uh, as I was reading a commentary, they said, well, you realize that up here, uh, untying a knot. Uh, Jesus untied a knot, and this woman was all knotted up, so she was, he was breaking one of the rules of the, the melicot. And it, it's fascinating, these extra rules, these extra things they add, and so right here, Jesus' disciples, they were harvesting. They were eating grain on the Sabbath. Seems wrong. Strike one, a one-dimensional villain. Don't eat, even if you're hungry. Immediately after that, in Matthew 12, 9, Jesus goes on from that place, and he goes into a synagogue. And a man with a shriveled hand is there, Looking for a reason to bring charges against Jesus, they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? He said to them, if any of you had a sheep and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, wouldn't you take a hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable is a person than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. So he stretched it out and it was completely restored, just as sound as the other. But the Pharisees went out and plotted on how to kill Jesus. Because Jesus had healed a man who was crippled. And Jesus said, you care about your things, you care about your livelihood, but you don't care about this man. What is wrong with you? Strike two. You're a one-dimensional villain. You care about things over people. Moving on to Matthew 12, 22. Then they brought him a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute, and Jesus healed him so that he could talk and see. All of the people were astonished and said, could this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, it is only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons. Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined, and every city or household divided against itself will not stand. If Satan drives out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then can this kingdom stand? And if I drive out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your people drive them out? So then, they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I drive out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Strike three. One-dimensional villain. Uh, I perform a miracle in front of you. I cast out a demon. Uh, 
and you attribute it to something else. You attribute it to lies. You attribute it to demons. You won't accept what I'm doing in front of you. And as you read through the Bible, Jesus really has a problem with the Pharisees. Here are some of the things we hear him say. Hey, good trees give good fruit. Bad trees give bad fruit. And you pit of vipers, we know what kind of fruit you give. Or you're like hypocrites. You're like whitewashed tombs. You look good on the outside, but on the inside, you're full of the bones of the dead and you're unclean. For some reason, this religious group, these villains, really got on Jesus' nerves, even though they should be on the same team. Jesus, Jewish rabbi, preaching to people about the kingdom of God. Pharisees, Jewish rabbis, followers of God. But Jesus seems to have a huge problem with them. They had 613 laws they followed. They had the writings of the Old Testament. They had the melicote and the other things they followed. And Jesus was so upset. And on the surface, they look one-dimensional until we start to ask how they were formed, and we start to ask, if I may, what is their tragic backstory? And we ask ourselves, what would you and I have done in their situation? The last book of the Old Testament is the book of Malachi. Malachi is finished around 397 B.C. There are 400 years between Malachi and Matthew and the apparent silence of God. Uh, there's, there's no written words here. There's no, there's no prophets. We just see the silence of God. And it is not an easy 400 years for the Jewish people. Uh, at first, we have the Persians. Uh, the Persians come and they invade and they free the Jewish people from Babylonian captivity, which is awesome. And then they enslave them. And, and at first, it's really bad. And then it gets better. Uh, 397 B.C. to 336 B.C. After this, Alexander the Great comes in and he frees them and he introduces all this kinds of polytheism and Hellenization and all these different gods. And so for a people who were trying to be holy and separate and set apart, all of these new influences came in and just radically shifted their culture. After this with the Egyptians... 323 to 198, the Egyptians came in, took over, dealt severely with the Jews until things got better. Then the Syrians, the Jews were treated harshly. Uh, after this, we have the Maccabean revolt. Uh, the Maccabeans get together. Uh, they form the Hasmonean dynasty, and the Jews have freedom for 70 years. Uh, for 70 years, they can govern themselves. They can breathe. Uh, and around this time, uh, the Pharisees are formed. And then the Romans come, 63 BC, up until what we read in the New Testament. Herod kills all descendants of the Hasmonean dynasty, including his wife and his two sons. And things are looking bad for the Jews again, and they continue to get worse. So 400 years of captivity, subjugation, being treated poorly, external influences, and a God who seems woefully silent. During this time, groups split. Some go off on their own, some join with Rome, some move towards social issues and a high priest, and some, the Pharisees, take a hard look at their theology and they push a theology of extreme holiness and righteousness. If God is quiet, then do we need to do better? 
Do we need to be more holy? If God wants us to be this set apart, but he's silent, what if we're this set apart? Um, What if we're this good? Then as they're trying to get in the full swing of things, this carpenter comes along claiming to be the son of God and begins to erode what they've built. He says things like, hey, the God that I serve doesn't need any of that. Make changes. To which they say, really? Then why did he write it down? Uh, And why has he been silent so long? Because what we're doing is making us holy, and you're stepping all over that. The Pharisees believed in an afterlife, uh, which was a little unique to them. Other groups did as well, but there were other groups like the Sadducees who didn't. Uh, They believed in a Davidic kingdom. They believed that there would be an end times and the kingdom of David would come and that the judgment upon you was based on the sins of your life and the life that you lived. And with the life expectancy of the time, they didn't have a lot of time to get better. The average life expectancy of the time was about 30 to 35 years old. Uh, Alexander the Great lived till 33. Um, And it's a little skewed because infant mortality rate was through the roof. It was so high So it wasn't uncommon if a person made it into adulthood for them to make it to their early to mid-50s, but it was still a much shorter amount of time than you and I have. God's rules were sacred, and many of those rules were based on being set apart, holy, and different while living in a society that in their minds was largely godless, and they had to work 10 times harder to be set apart. And if the afterlife is true, and if heaven is real, and if the afterlife is necessary, then I need to work my butt off because if God judges me, I want to be on the right side of it. Of all of the religious groups that existed during Jesus' time, uh, most of them disappeared. Today, uh, main forms of Judaism trace their roots back to rabbinical Judaism and ultimately the Pharisees. And the question that you and I have to ask ourselves is if we had been in that situation, or heck, if you look at us today, are you and I any different? Or are the Pharisees a little more three-dimensional than they're portrayed? I'll speak a little bit in generalities here, but in general, we tend to paint ourselves as the protagonist of our story and the hero. Uh, The church, I'll say the big C church, I won't specifically speak to Discovery Christian Church, hopefully, but the church today, uh, what it's known for across the world, isn't always that great. We aren't always known for what we love. Uh, We're largely known for what we dislike, disagree with, um, or who we follow politically. The church tends to be very vocal about people and groups who don't line up with our godly worldview, regardless of what that person believes, And we often find ourselves hitching our self-worth, value, and beliefs to doctrines rather than faith. Judgment of others is really easy when you're the hero of the story. But scripture, no matter how much we look at it, never seems to point to us as the hero. It never seems to point to us as the protagonist. But rather, we're the ones on the sidelines who have received a free gift that is purely based on the guy who loved us and wants us to share that love with others. The Pharisees felt so assailed by the unholiness of the world around them that they gathered in tightly, they put up their walls, and they created this bastion of holiness and said, hey, get in here, but to get in here, there's a bunch of hoops you're going to have to jump through, and if you don't jump through them all, we don't really want you. 
I hope that's not what the church looks like today. The Sadducees were oftentimes more known for who they connected with politically than who they pointed to spiritually. I hope that's not what the church looks like today. I think the Pharisees and the Sadducees believed themselves to be the main characters of the story, when in reality they were on the sidelines being offered a free gift. Uh, There are some of you in here who I believe probably completely disagree with me, and that's okay. Um, I have a story to tell you, because I love storytelling. Uh, I love reading about characters. And today, I want to read a story to you. And as I do, I want you to figure out where you identify in the story. And if you identify with the main character, and that's all you identify with, I think you're probably only half right. Uh, I want to challenge you to ask yourself, where in this story do you fit? Throughout the New Testament, Jesus often says it takes faith like a child to come to him. And oftentimes, as we get older and wiser, our wisdom gets convoluted and holds us back. So toward that end, I'd like to read us a children's story. I'll have pictures on the screen. I'd encourage you to follow along. If you are a parent, I would highly encourage you to buy this book. If you are not a parent, I would highly encourage you to buy this book. It's phenomenal. Uh, I'm going to read a book by a great author named Max Lucado called You Are Special. And I'd like to challenge you to identify where you fit in the story. The Wemmicks were small wooden people. All of the wooden people were carved by a woodworker named Eli. His workshop sat on a hill overlooking their village. Each Wemmick was different. Some had big noses, others had large eyes. Some were tall and others were short. Some wore hats and others wore coats, but all were made by the same carver and all lived in the village. And all day, every day, the Wemmicks did the same thing. They gave each other stickers. Each Wemmick had a box of golden star stickers and a box of gray dot stickers. Up and down the streets all over the city, people spent their days sticking stars or dots on one another. The pretty ones, those with smooth wood and fine paint, always got stars. But if the wood was rough and the paint chipped, the Wemmicks gave dots. The talented ones got stars too. Some could lift big sticks high above their heads or jump over tall boxes. Still others knew big words or could sing pretty songs, and everybody gave them stars. Some Wemmicks had stars all over them. Every time they got a star, it made them feel so good. It made them want to do something else and get another star. Others, though, they could do little, so they got dots. Punchinello was one of these. He tried to jump high like the others, but he always fell. And when he fell, the others would gather around and give him dots. Sometimes when he fell, his wood got scratched, so the people would give him more dots. Then he would try to explain why he fell. He would say something silly, and Wemmicks would give him more dots. After a while, he had so many dots that he didn't want to go outside. He was afraid he would do something dumb, such as forget his hat or step in the water, and then people would give him another dot. In fact, he had so many gray dots that sometimes people would come up and give him one for no reason at all. He deserves a lot of dots. The wooden people would agree with one another. He's not a good wooden person. After a while, Punchinello believed them. I'm not a good Wemmick, he would say. The few times he went outside, he hung around other Wemmicks who had lots of dots. He'd feel better around them. One day, he met a Wemmick who was unlike any he'd ever met. She had no dots or stars. She was just wooden. Her name was Lucia. 
It wasn't that people didn't try to give her stickers, it's just that the stickers didn't stick. Some of the Wemmicks admired Lucia for having no dots, so they would run and give her a star, but it would fall off. Others would look down on her for having no stars, so they would give her a dot, but it wouldn't stay either. That's the way I want to be, thought Punchinello. I don't want anyone's marks. So he asked the stickerless Wemmick how she did it. It's easy, Lucia replied. Every day I go see Eli. Eli? Yes, Eli, the woodcarver. I sit in the workshop with him. Why? Why don't you go for yourself? Go up the hill, he's there, and with that the Wemmick who had no stickers turned and skipped away. But will he want to see me? Punchinello cried out. Lucia didn't hear, so Punchinello went home. He sat near a window and watched the wooden people as they scurried around giving each other stars and dots. It's not right, he muttered to himself, so he decided to go see Eli. He walked up the narrow path to the top of the hill and stepped into the big shop. His wooden eyes widened at the size of everything. The stool was as tall as he was. He had a stretch on his tiptoes to see the top of the workbench. A hammer was as long as his arm. Punchinello swallowed hard. I'm not staying here. He turned to leave. Then he heard his name. Punchinello. The voice was deep and strong. Punchinello stopped. Punchinello, how good to see you. Come and let me have a look at you. Punchinello turned slowly and looked at the large bearded craftsman. You know my name? The little Wemmick asked. Of course I do. I made you. Eli stooped down and picked him up and set him on the bench. Hmm. The maker spoke thoughtfully as he looked at the gray dots. Looks like you've been given some bad marks. I didn't mean to, Eli. I really tried. Oh, you don't have to defend yourself to me, child. I don't care what the other Wemmicks think. You don't? No, and you shouldn't either. Who are they to give stars or dots? They're Wemmicks just like you. What they think doesn't matter, Punchinello. All that matters is what I think, and I think you're pretty special. Punchinello laughed. Me special? Why? I can't walk fast. I can't jump. My paint is peeling. Why do I matter to you? Eli looked at Punchinello, put his hands on those small wooden shoulders, and spoke very softly. Because you're mine, and that's why you matter to me. Punchinello had never had anyone look at him like this, much less his maker. He didn't know what to say. Every day I'd been hoping you'd come, Eli explained. I came because I met someone who had no marks, said Punchinello. I know, she told me about you. Why don't the sticker stay on her? The maker spoke softly. Because she has decided what, the, what I think is more important than what they think. The stickers only stick if you let them. What? The stickers only stick if they matter to you. The more you trust my love, the less you care about their stickers. I'm not sure I understand. You will but it'll take time. You've got a lot of marks. For now, just come see me every day and let me remind you how much I care. Eli lifted Punchinello off the bench and set him on the ground. Remember, Eli said as the Wemmick walked out the door, you're special because I made you and I don't make mistakes. Punchinello didn't stop, but in his heart he thought, I think he really means it. And when he did, a dot fell to the ground. Dang, Max Lucado. You are special, as is everyone else, and they deserve a chance to know their creator.
And what does Punchinello's life look like if Lucia doesn't introduce him to Eli? Uh, Two weeks ago, Zach gave a message on mission. And he said, uh, God calls you to tell others about the reason for your hope and your faith and to bring others along with you. Uh, Last week, I talked about the concept of the trail guide. and, And it's our job to bring people to the trail Uh, to point them toward Jesus, and to find out that if we are off trail, if we are stuck, if we are lost, that there's a God who wants to redirect us on. Um, And today, I want to point out the Pharisees, uh, the people who create barriers, who create walls, um, and how I hope that's not us. The story had a whole list of characters, There are ones who gave stars. There are ones who give dots. There are ones who receive stars. There are ones who receive dots. And there are the ones who spend their time with Eli. Um, And where do we fit in with that? I think the Pharisees had the right idea to start. Let's be holy. Let's point to God. Let's have people see us walking toward God. Let's be set apart. Let's be different They missed the mark when they started creating hoops and barriers that were impossible for people to walk through. I hope that Discovery Christian Church is different. I'd like to invite the band back out. Um, And as I do, um, I want to say I hope that we are a church of open doors and open walls and a place where anyone can come, no matter what you've done or what's been done to you, and feel loved and cared for. I hope that our people go beyond these walls and find people and spread the love of Jesus and say, hey, if you walk with me toward Jesus, it's going to be a little weird. Um, And you're going to say things that are going to make me completely cringe, and I'm going to say things that are going to make you cringe, and I know that because I watched Jesus. And when Jesus spoke to his disciples, there were times they cringed. And when Jesus' disciples spoke to him, there were times that they cringed. It's okay. In fact, it was really beautiful. I hope we're that kind of church. I hope that you're excited to fully dive into the mission of what God has called us to. And I pray that we could be the kind of place that when Jesus looks at us, he says, wow, those are people who are on mission. And I love what they're doing. I'd love to pray for us before we jump back into worship. Hey, God, it's Jake. I'm probably a giver of spots (laughs) and stars. And I don't know if I spent enough time with Eli. And I pray that I am not pharisaical in the way that I act. And I know that I oftentimes am. God, I want to thank you for, for working on me and for shaping the people in this room. Uh, God, I want to thank you for being a creator who uh, points and directs um, and lets us know that if we spend time with you and we bring others to you, that we are on mission. And it doesn't have to be perfect. And it, it might make others cringe a little. And it might make us cringe a little. And it might make us uncomfortable, but it's what you want. 
God, thank you for these people. Amen.